Hello there, this is Mark Bauerlein with another conversation. Before we get to it, a word about one of our sponsors. You may have seen a recent article in InsideHigherEd.com that began, Wyoming Catholic College has a lot of unusual things about it, each enough to merit a story in itself. Wyoming Catholic is a conservative Catholic college that educates students in the great books and Catholic tradition. It also teaches horsemanship and bans cell phones on campus. I love that. And it turned down federal funding. President Glenn Arbery describes the mission this way. This college is engaged in deep ways with the agony of a culture that has lost its spiritual center. We're adventurous and poetic and deeply Catholic. He likes to cite Dostoevsky in Crime and Punishment. Low ceilings are bad for the soul. The ceilings rise at Wyoming Catholic, which is located in the foothills of the Wind River Mountains, the curriculum centers in the Western tradition. Its Catholic identity builds upon Thomas Aquinas and the magisterium of the Catholic Church and engaging with God in the wilderness. Find out more at wyomingcatholic.edu. We have with us today Andrew Keene. He is a notable figure in Silicon Valley, has been for several decades now. And I thought we would do something different today instead of focusing on one book. He actually has built up a corpus of writings about Silicon Valley going back a decade and a half. And so with his permission, I would like to run through those books and get his reflection on what has been going on in the in the digital revolution, because I actually think his commentaries amount to one of the more important reflections on this this revolution or whatever it is that we have been undergoing for the last 20 or 30 years. Welcome, Andrew. Thank you for joining us. Well, thank you. Now, there are four books to cover. The first one, The Cult of the Amateur, How Blogs, MySpace, YouTube, and the rest of today's user-generated media are destroying our economy, our culture, and our values. That's from 2007. What was the thesis of that book? Why were you well-placed, well-equipped to, to argue it. Well, thank you. Cult of the Amateur, which actually has a pretty provocative subtitle, maybe slightly exaggerated, but, you know, subtitles are designed to sell books. How the Internet is Killing Our Culture, was a, the, one of the first critiques of what in Silicon Valley is called Web 2.0, which was the technology, the Internet technology that spawned companies like Google, Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, that allowed anyone to become a publisher and to distribute their ideas, their videos, their text, their photographs anywhere on the internet. The assumption was about Web 2.0, whether this was unambiguously a good thing, that giving everyone the tools would knock out the middlemen, the big publisher, the movie studios, the record labels, that everyone would have a platform to express themselves, that it would democratize culture and benefit everyone. Uh, whilst I, wouldn't, I wasn't arguing that it didn't have some beneficial consequences, my book was a warning about this radical democratization in, in two or three different ways. Firstly, I argued in Cult of the Amateur that undermining expertise wasn't a good thing, particularly when it comes to journalists, publishers, record label people, because they're the best arbiters of taste. They could distinguish the, the wheat from the, sh the chaff. Secondly, I suggested that this would lend itself naturally to corruption, because when anyone becomes a publisher and when you have complete anonymity on the Internet, it allows disreputable characters. I mean, this was pre-Putin or at the beginning of Putin, so I didn't actually mention Putin. But people like Putin to basically 
put out propaganda and lies. And thirdly, in economic terms, I argued that the business model didn't work. When you give everything out for free in the cult of the amateur uh, on Web 2.0, you're essentially undermining the business model. Not only are you undermining the business model of traditional publishers and newspapers, but you're actually making it harder and harder for smart, creative, talented people to make money. So Mm -hmm. that thesis was quite controversial at the time. Back in 2007, when the book came out, I was an internet entrepreneur, but I was accused of being anti-technology, reactionary, elitist, all these other things. But I think in retrospect, since 2007, I've been proved, I mean, the book wasn't entirely right. I predicted, for example, that Facebook would fail. So uh, (laughs) everyone everyone has their misses. But I, I think that book has generally proved to be more accurate, and especially the kind of utopian hopefulness of people like Larry Lessig and Chris Anderson. The other book that was very popular at the time in 2006, your listeners will remember, was The Long Tail. So The Cult of the Amateur was, uh, again, to excuse the pun, the the other end of the the tale to the long (laughs) tail. It was the real tale, the truthful tale rather than the lie. I, re- I remember seeing you on the Colbert Report, doing a little a little bit with Stephen Colbert, who'd have books authors uh, on the show. Actually, it was hilarious. Yeah. You you were you were you were very good. I I, inver- I encourage people to go on to YouTube to see that clip. But you you were yeah. quite blunt in saying that all this sharing and open access stuff was really a form of stealing. That people were stealing culture. And that they were so accustomed to it that it, it would, yeah, the, the, the business model would fail. Now, on that score, the business model side, did the Silicon Valley people say, you know, uh, he could be right and this is going to hurt us? Or maybe, maybe maybe even if they were stealing culture, it wouldn't hurt them. It might hurt the record, whatever, but it wouldn't hurt them. I, I don't know what 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 did go on there. Well, it didn't hurt the Silicon Valley people because when I, re- you know, I remember when I was writing Cult of the Amateur, while I was writing the book, YouTube sold to Google for $1.5 billion. And at that time, $1.5 billion was a lot of money. Now it is, <laughs> I mean, it is a lot to you and I and to your listeners, but to Silicon Valley, it's not a lot. And I thought, like everybody else, that was an absurd amount of money and they'd overpaid. My guess today is that YouTube is worth I mean, Google's worth almost a trillion dollars, and I'm guessing YouTube must be worth a quarter of a trillion dollars. So that was one of the smartest investments of Google. It was a brilliant investment. And YouTube essentially works by giving out their... I mean, most people go on YouTube and they get their videos for free. Facebook's content is free. Twitter's content is free. So these companies have made fortunes with free content. So I don't think anyone in Silicon Valley is bemoaning that. And and that was one of the points in the book is there was an element of hypocrisy because they were celebrating free content in the name of democratization, making a huge profit, and at the same time, killing the traditional media businesses. So uh, over the last 20 years, the newspaper industry, the publishing industry, the record labels, they've all collapsed one way or the other. It doesn't mean that all the creative industries have gone away. They've adapted in some ways. And there have been some interesting new Silicon Valley models uh, since 2007. We have Spotify, which obviously is paid content, which I think is a good product. YouTube now has some paid models. I mean, I pay through YouTube to get television. 
I certainly prefer YouTube to AT&T or DirecTV. So not everything they've done is bad, but um, Silicon Valley has made an, a, a, a ridiculous fortune. I mean, if you think of the top companies, uh, Facebook and Google in particular, they've made fortunes, unimaginable fortunes from free content. Every time we post on Facebook or Twitter, we're creating content for Facebook or Twitter and they don't pay us. That was one of the things that I wanted to remind people in my book. When you talk about the money here, you know, in Wired Magazine 1995, were telling us that this was going to break up all the Goliaths, that we'd have an army of Davids. There would be the decentralization of big media. Does anyone go back to that, to that prediction these days and say the consolidation that we see is, is like nothing we've ever seen before? Yeah, and that was another, I don't know if I said that in Calpiameter, but that's a point I made in my later book, uh, The Internet's Not the Answer. This is very much, and this was always the case with tech, it's a winner-take-all economy. So whether it's Microsoft or Google or Facebook or Amazon, of course, or even Apple, uh, huge companies peripherate, not because the people who run them are evil or bad, it's just the nature of the market. That prediction by Wired is relevant today because increasingly there's a political debate in Washington, D.C. about a provision in, in the media law, the, the Fair Harbor law, which essentially made these new platforms not responsible for the content they published on them, but allowed them to grow so much. And now both the left and the right are looking more and more at Section 230 and Fair Harbor and saying, well, what did we actually create? It was designed to help these Davids, these startups, take on the big companies. And at the time, that made sense in 1995 or 1997 when the law came out. But today, it seems ludicrous to have laws that benefit these trillion-dollar companies that are, <laughs> are killing the rest of the economy. So... Um, it's 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 very relevant today. I think the laws that do or don't benefit big, you know, big media today is our Facebook and Google and Amazon. They're the ones who control media, whether it's yeah. movies or music, Apple as well, of course. The next book, as we move on to 2012, was Digital Vertigo: How Today's Online Social Revolution Is Dividing, Diminishing, and Disorienting Us. Uh, same question as before. What was the main argument? And maybe, you know, we're five years later from from Cult of the Amateur. Was there something that had changed significantly that evoked this particular angle? Some of your listeners will uh, will be authors and they know how intimate we are with our authors are with their books. <laughs> you were kind enough to say that Cult of the Amateur was a bestseller, and you didn't say that about Digital Vertigo, because it wasn't. Digital Vertigo was very much of a second book, in the sense that second books after first books do very well are often very hard, because people expect something, and you. the danger is either repeating yourself and saying the same thing, or saying something completely different. Yeah. Uh, I actually, and but, but going back to this idea, I always think of books like children, but you're very close to them and you know both that you love them, but you also know their flaws. Digital Vertigo was the least successful of my books, but I also think it's probably the best book. It certainly has the best beginning. If someone said to me, well, I just want to read 20 or 30 pages of, of what you've written. I've, re I've read nothing of what you've written. I would suggest the beginning of Digital Vertigo, which is, a uh, a scene I have in front of Jeremy Bentham's tomb, public yeah. tomb at University College in London, 
the book was probably misnamed. It was called Digital Vertigo because it was a remix of Hitchcock's Vertigo. So it was a reminder not to fall in love with things that seem too good to be true. And of course, the internet and social media does seem too good to be true. I probably should have called it Cult of the Social. It was the logical follow-up to Cult of the Amateur, whereas Cult of the Amateur was critical of digital of the of the cult of amateurism, the idea that anyone could be an author. Digital Vertigo was a critique of the fetishization of the social, right. particularly peddled by Mark Zuckerberg. Digital uh, Cult of the Amateur was written in 2007, so Facebook was very much of a, a footnote at most. I mean, Facebook was just starting up then. So the companies that were critiqued in Cult of the Amateur were Amazon and Google and YouTube. But Digital Vertigo was a critique of the social, the idea that the social is a good thing. Many of your listeners will be familiar with a later book, The Age of Surveillance Capitalism by Shoshona Zuboff, which is a very good book and a very substantial, dense book. Cult of the Amateur is a kind of easy-to-read version of surveillance capitalism, suggesting yeah. with social media, we're stumbling into a world where we're watched all the time. It's a panopticon, uh, yeah. a digital panopticon. And that's why I begin with the C at University College by Bentham's Court, because Bentham, of course, was the original author of the idea of the panopticon. Digital Vertigo is, is a critique of the idea of the social and a defense of the darkness of the individual self, the defense of the idea yeah. of privacy and secrecy as being essential to the construction of the modern self. Well, I, I stole some some quotes and scenes from from that book that, that you wrote about this idea of uh, Zuckerberg and Reid Hoffman, the, the founder of LinkedIn, saying that, you know, we want it so that no one ever has to be lonely, alone, ever again. And you have a scene in there when you're talking with Reed Hoffman, who seems incredulous when you tell him, you know, some people really prefer to be alone. And he, he just couldn't. Yeah. How could you be so uh, obtuse not to get that? Yeah, I don't think Reed Hoffman was not very pleased about that book. I don't think he's ever spoken to me since. <laughs> we, Reed and I did a debate at Oxford University about all this. And another of the scenes in the book that I really like was one in which Reed Hoffman and I are having breakfast at our hotel, which is a luxury boutique hotel, which has been built out of an old prison. So I really like that scene. Perfect. And Reed Hoffman is, of course, not only one of the fathers of social media, he was the guy who introduced Mark Zuckerberg to Peter Thiel. He's also the co-founder of LinkedIn, and he even owned one of the original uh, IPs associated with social media itself. Reid Hoffman is actually a very decent person, a very good man, and a very mm -hmm. generous man. I think that was probably a little unkind, certainly compared to Thiel. Uh, I, I have a great deal of admiration in many ways for Reid Hoffman. He's put a his money where his mouth is, especially when it comes to Donald Trump. So I was probably a little unkind, but it was a nice narrative at the time. Yeah. Yeah. Why do you refer in that book? I think it was the first time you, you'd done this. You refer to the Silicon Valley inventors and promoters as, quote, evangelists. Yeah, I mean, I'm certainly not the first person to do that. There mm -hmm. is a strong evangelical quality. I mean, you're a religious podcast, so... 
you're in the the evangelical business yourself. There was a very good book written by Fred Turner from counterculture to cyberculture, from counterculture to cyberspace. And it's about this very close relationship between the counterculture and the building out of the internet, a kind of evangelical libertarianism that uh, laced a lot of the thinking in Silicon Valley. I don't think it does so much now because I think Silicon Valley just attracts graduates from the business schools who want to make a lot of money fast. But the original figures, I think, even back in the 90s, were people who really did believe in changing the world. They also thought they could get rich fast. Now these people just want to get rich fast. But yeah, there is a there is an evangelical quality, a religious quality, I think, to some aspects, or there was to some aspects of Silicon Valley. And, you know, the yeah. followings of these people, I mean, the idolization of somebody like Steve Jobs. Today, it's the, the, the new Steve Jobs is Elon Musk. That's also uh, a strange religious quality to it. If we jump ahead, 2015 came, the internet is not the answer. If you want to identify for us, okay, the main the main thesis of that book. By then, it was increasingly clear that the internet was a winner-take-all economy. So in 2007, I focused on user-generated content. It was a cultural critique. Digital vertigo was um, a philosophical critique of social media. The internet is not the answer, it's an economic critique of what we now call surveillance capitalism, the Silicon Valley surveillance capitalism, dominated by a tiny group of companies who are making massive fortunes, putting many, many people out of work and creating surveillance capitalism where we're watched all the time and we're giving away our content for free while these companies are getting very rich. In Cult of the Amateur, I talked about the acquisition of YouTube by Google. In the Internet's Not the Answer, I talked about the acquisition of Instagram by Facebook. Again, it was a billion and a half dollar deal. Again, it seems absurd. Today, Instagram's probably worth 100 or $200 billion. It's in some ways, I think, a more successful company certainly a less controversial company than, than Facebook. And what I did in uh, The Internet's Not the Answer is I went to Rochester, New York, the home of Kodak. Yeah, and the scene in that was the narrative where Kodak goes bankrupt, tens of thousands of people are made redundant, and Instagram becomes, in some senses, the new Kodak, selling for a billion and a half to Facebook and only employing 15 people. Yeah. So this was a book that, warned about the way in which the digital revolution was making tens of thousands of people redundant, not really creating jobs, creating huge wealth for a tiny group of engineers and investors, and creating a a winner-take-all capitalism, which actually stymied innovation, which was against the startup. By 2015, these companies were already hundreds of, they weren't trillion dollar companies, but they were hundreds of billions of dollar companies, hugely powerful. Google is perhaps the best example of that. Companies which are increasingly conservative and focused on eliminating their competition and establishing one kind of monopoly or another. The book has a nice little history of the development of the internet that I I actually think everyone should read. Uh, A question in Silicon Valley, Especially you got people now, you know, 30 years old who are in Silicon Valley working there in 2020. How alive is 
the memory of the late 90s, the early odds? Do people, or even go back, do people remember that message UCLA sent to Stanford on, on October 1st, 1969, or do they even care? No, I don't think so. You know, but America is generally <laughs> like that. I mean, people watching television. I mean, the, the movie, if you go down to LA, no one knows about the original movie studio. Mm. I think that's generally true of Americans in general suffer from amnesia. They're not really very interested in the past. And that's particularly true in Silicon Valley, where everyone always assumes that everything is beginning anew. You always hear this phrase, well, we've ne- this has never happened before in human history. We've never done that. And of course, that's the most repetitive thing ever said. So uh, there's not a lot of knowledge of the past or interest, actually. Is that a significant outlook in Silicon Valley now? I haven't done any research. So a lot of my analysis would be anecdotal. I mean, the best example, rather than Chris Anderson, is Steve Jobs. Steve yeah. Jobs, of course, is without whether you like it. I mean, he clearly wasn't a very nice man, but he was a genius. He not only invented the personal computer, essentially, or certainly uh, invented the marketing of the personal computer, but then he invented the iPod, and then he invented the iPhone and the iPad. And one of the striking things about Jobs is he wouldn't allow his kids to use them because he understood the value of books and of traditional music. I think it's interesting in the sense that it speaks to the continuing value of the physical, the fact that these people want to send their kids to Waldorf schools, that they want them to read books, that they don't want them to be on their iPhones or their iPads all the time, shows the way in which physical media uh, still has, and analog media still has value. It also speaks to the fact that the internet has always been in Silicon Valley, has always been presented as this equalizer not only as a democratizer, but a flattener in economic terms. Yeah. But it's always, it's, it's supposed to be this thing that will every way you know, that you have this other, well, there's this kid in India, and now he can do online banking, or now they can read the New York Times, or now they can listen to music, and before they never had access. And there's some truth to that. But one of the ironies of the internet is that the real power, I think, in the 21st century will go to people who are still rooted in analog. The best schools now are are in in Silicon Valley, perhaps, are Waldorf schools, which focus on the physical. Universities, liberal arts schools, Ivy League, they don't put people on iPads. And I think that's going to be a particularly important piece of a post-COVID world, is the physical Mm. will become increasingly expensive and inaccessible to anyone but the rich. And Silicon Mm. Valley are the richest people in America. And they epitomize, and the inequalities of Silicon Valley epitomize the inequalities of America. So I think what's interesting about the kids in Silicon Valley going to these schools which discourage or don't allow digital media and iPads and iPhones speaks to this new ironic cultural and economic cleavage in America, that the internet is free, it's the giveaway, it's the trash, and it's increasingly... I think uh, you might think of it as Marx talked, obviously, about religion as the opium of the people. But it has become the opium of the people, the Facebooks of the world. Uh, Wherever you go these days, it's people staring at their iPhones. They're increasingly affordable. And it's poor people staring at their iPhones. Attention has become the most valuable commodity. And the people who best protect their attention are the most powerful. And it's not the poor who do that. Okay, 2018, last book, How to Fix the Future. This is something of a turn 
for you? Where are you going here? By 2018, the zeitgeist has shifted. And I remember I've been at this 10 years. I wrote three books critical of the internet. So firstly, I'm kind of bored with this critique because there's <laughs> only so much you can say. Secondly, the zeitgeist is shifting by 2016, 17. My argument, which had always been on the fringe and considered reactionary and elitist and out of touch and all the rest of it now, is becoming increasingly mainstream. You know, Chris Anderson and Larry Lessig have disappeared. Lessig, God knows, you know, he ran for president. Anderson became a, a, an entrepreneur, failed entrepreneur. Everything he seems to have done, he's failed in. There were no longer any booster books, no more long tails and all yeah. that sort of thing. So the argument had shifted. And one of the things that, at least from my point of view, at least I find very boring is being in the majority and preaching to the choir. Uh, excusing, you know, I know this is a religious podcast. Uh, I figured, well, I need to stay, uh, you know, writers always want to stay one step ahead of others. And my publisher said, well, why don't we know all the problems? You've laid all the problems out. So how are we going to fix them? Because we're not going to blow the internet up. We're not going to go back to a pre-digital world. So How to Fix the Future is my solutions book. It's a book which focuses on the need for regulation, self-regulation, the role of government, the role of education. There's some stuff in, on Waldorf schools there. The best bit in that book is my invention of what I call Moore's Law. Moore's Law. With one O. Valley version. Yeah, the, 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 the one O, uh, the, well, the two O's is Moore's Law, Gordon Moore, the co-founder of Intel, who predicted, I think it was in 1965, that computer chips, the power of computer chips would double every 18 months. That's yeah. been the engine of this revolution in Silicon Valley. That's what has allowed for the creation, say, of the iPhone, the iPhone now, which is essentially a supercomputer, which you can put in your pocket. Today's iPhone wouldn't fit in a house or a building 40 years ago. So I come up with an alternative of Moore's Law, which I take from Thomas More, the English author of Utopia, which speaks of the importance of agency and self-creation. So my Moore's Law is how do we sort of carve out autonomy and responsibility and citizenship in, in the digital world? So it was a, it's, it's a solutions world. I'm not, you know, it did quite well. It's an interesting book in the sense that it generated a lot of attention. I've been, uh, up until COVID, I've spent the last few years traveling around the world speaking about it. It, was, yeah. it didn't, sell, as a book, it didn't sell as well as the internet's not the answer or cult of the amateur. I'm not sure. Again, I think, you know, maybe I'm not sure I'm at my best as a positive, optimistic writer. But I think it was generally prescient. It was a little bit ahead of its time. It talked about the need, for example, for antitrust now. I wrote that in, you know, and I, and I, and I met with Margaret Vestager, the EU commissioner on antitrust, using her as the model. Today, Washington, D.C. is focusing increasingly on the EU and antitrust. I wrote about breaking these companies up. I wrote about the role of consumers. I wrote about laws giving workers rights on sharing platforms like Airbnb and Uber. So I think a lot of the stuff that I, I, I wrote about was, was relatively prescient. And there's reason not to despair that the, the giants are just 
too big, that, that something can be done. I, I think that's an important thing for people to... Yeah, I mean, the book, uh, yeah, the book is quite historical. So we go back to the 1890s, we go back to the 1880s, we go back to big oil, big railroads, we go back to the trust busters. So I compare Silicon Valley with New York in the 1890s, and I argue we've done it once, we, we can do it again. And I think increasingly people are arguing. I mean, I have my arguing the same thing. I have my own uh, podcast show called Keen On, which is a daily show uh, interviewing people about new books. And I've all, I've interviewed about five or six people in the last six months who have books about monopolies and the need to break monopolies up. Everyone from to. Zephyr Teachout, the New York politician, to David Diane, to uh, all sorts of other writers. So, uh, yeah, this thing is, uh, you know, we can do it. We've done it before. I think it's all too easy with tech to either become an evangelist or to despair. I think I've in the past been guilty of despairing a bit too much, being too dystopian. I mean, the reality is we've lived through these radical transformations before. We lived through the Industrial Revolution. Uh, we lived through the information revolution. We lived through the television revolution. And we can survive. I, I mean, it's not perfectly, but we have to deal with what we have to deal with. Andrew Keene, thank you for joining us. Thank you. And thank you for listening to our conversation, which has been supported by Wyoming Catholic College, which combines great books, the Catholic tradition, and the great outdoors of the American West into an extraordinary education. Go to wyomingcatholic.edu or contact the admissions office at 877 877- 332-2930.